everyone and welcome to the first episode of Conscious Conversations. My name is Aubrey Bailey and today we are here with Tox Okini and Kabung Lomodong to discuss FGM more in depth so you can all have a better understanding of the practice. Tox and Kabung, how are you ladies doing today? Very well, thank you for having us Aubrey. Of course, I'm super excited to speak with you both. So let me briefly introduce both of these women to you guys. Tox graduated from the University of Buckingham studying law and then went to attain her PGD in legal practices from London Guildhall University. She is now head of the UK programs and operations at Forward in the UK. She leads the UK community training school teams as well as the planning and delivery of support, casework, and psychological education risk assessments. Kabung has a Bachelor of Science from the University of Hull in London and a Master's in Global Health and Development from the University College London. She is now Community Program Lead at Forward, which is a foundation for women's health research and development in the UK. So we are so grateful to have both of them here with us today. They have so much great knowledge and I'm just excited to tap into it all. So I guess first off, um, if you guys would just take a moment and tell us a little bit about yourselves, where you're from, and how you got into your field of work at Forward. We'll go first, Talks, and then Kabang. Oh, well, um, I think my background is, um, I've got a legal background, and I've always worked within the third sector. I worked before coming to Forward as a service director in what we call like, um, it's a hybrid of a legal advice center in the high court in London. And it was based in the family court. Um, And what we did was to give support and advice and find um, pro bono representation for people who we call litigants in person, which just means they are going to court on their own, they can't afford um legal representation so we support them with that um and from there i came to forward what really i think got me into forward is the fact that um, we work with african communities um and it's also about the you know the best interest of the child in everything that we do um i'm very very linked into that and also being able to actually work with communities and also you know support and you know develop them to be the best they can be wherever they are and most importantly working on violence against women and girls of course today we're talking about fgm but there's a plethora of some of those issues like um, also domestic abuse um child marriage forced marriage and so on um i suppose it's that legal remit that's really made me, you know, very, very interested in this work. I also am very interested in enhancing our community and where we find ourselves um, and also to give back. And in doing that, I'm also a magistrate. I sit in a family panel in the UK, criminal cases. So I think that's enough of me now. Over to Kabun. Well, thanks, Tox. Um, I don't have quite as colourful background experience as talks, but I would say that my interest um, and my background, I um, went to study biomedical science and from there I just became very interested in work around um, ethics and rights. And um, one day I was kind of did a Google search, really wanting to work with an organisation that worked around women's health. Um, and specifically around African women's health. And Forward was one of the organizations that was just top on the list, which did a lot. Um, So works around advocacy, working with communities. And that's something that's very much closely linked to what I am passionate about in terms of advancing the community and also development work as well. Around the time that I joined, I remember just feeling a sense of community and that really did resonate with me because we're all from migrant backgrounds and so coming to the UK or traveling to Europe is a very unique experience for somebody who wasn't born here or is not culturally from here and the organization definitely reflects that very well 
in that is about the needs of individuals and needs of women, but also looking at women as not just individuals, but a part of a whole community and looking at different practices around violence against women, or there are perceptions and attitudes in the community that is not very helpful for women. And it was something that I was definitely wanting to work in terms of empowering women, empowering the voices of women and the community as well. This is where I've been for now very many years. And I hope that even with the work forward that, or in our conversation, that we'll just have an opportunity to talk more about that. Thank you so much. So I wanted to define FGM for my listeners and touch on this topic. However, later on, I do want to talk about violence against women in a more broader sense, because I feel like that is also really important to talk about and not just specifically to FGM. But for the purposes of this podcast, I would love to define it so my listeners can have a better understanding. So I guess I'll go ahead and read this definition. So According to the World Health Organization, the term female genital mutilation, or FGM, refers to practices in which parts of the female external genitalia are altered, injured, or removed for non-medical reasons. Typically, it's carried out on young girls between infancy and 15 years of age. FGM is a human rights violation, has no benefits, and potentially causes devastating physical and psychological harm. It is an oppressive practice, and at least 200 million girls and women alive today have undergone female genital mutilation. So I was hoping that either of you could kind of help us understand the different types and maybe their consequences. Yeah, I think if one can tell us the types, I could tell you the consequences. Perfect. Um, Okay, so um, what we try and do sometimes is illustrate what the female genitals look like um, when FGM has not been performed. And so when we look at the female genitals, we focus on the vulva, which is the external parts of female genitalia. And what we have is the clitoris, which is a very sensitive part of the vulva, and that is the center point of pleasure. Then you have the labia minora and labia majora, which is the what we call sometimes the big lips and the small lips, and those are pretty essential for protecting the internal parts of the organs. Um, and also they are very much essential for stretching as well um, when a woman is giving birth and a lot of hormones kind of concentrate in that area. Um, and then you have the vagina of the vaginal opening, which is then the passage for menstruation and also delivery of birth and also sex. And not forgetting the urethra, which is the passage then where you urinate. And so looking at all of that, and all of those have essential functions for a healthy woman or young girl. And so when you have the different types and the different classifications of FGM, type one, you're looking at when the clitoris has been removed, that is classified as type one. And type two is when the clitoris or the clitoral hood might be removed. But this is when you have one of the labias removed as well. Um, And so that could include or exclude the removal of the clitoral glands. And then you have type 3, which is sometimes referred to as infibulation, is when you have the removal of the labia minora or the labia majora, and they are also stitched together. And sometimes in instances, the clitoris has been removed. and and the clitoral hood has been removed and sometimes it's still intact and this is what we call the most uh, severe type of FGM and some communities uh, they have different names for it as well so some communities might call it Faroni because uh, that is associated with uh, practice by the pharaohs and then you have type 4 which includes pricking, piercing, Um, incisions, scraping, cauterization, any other kind of practice that is done for non-medical purposes. Um, And so those are the different classifications of FGM. I think it's important to note that some women don't know what their types and classifications are, and they are done in different ways um, depending on the person who does the cutting um, and depending on the community that it is practiced as well. Okay. Um... 
I will then I will now talk about um, the effects of FGM. Um, the procedure sometimes is um, um well when it happens there's a ceremony and it's in some um, countries or even the same country they differ how this is done. But there's always issues or reports of post-traumatic stress, flashbacks, anxiety, and panic attacks. There is also sexual problems and psychological um, problems as well. Some of um, the reasons, you know, I think we talk about reasons in a bit. So, um, I'll just talk about, um, and apart from that, it could also re um, result in difficulty with childbirth. When a woman is about to give birth, because there's been the um, the FGM, in most cases, um, it depends. It could be the, um, the type 3, whichever type. What then occurs is the woman's um, genitals are not able to expand. And so because of that, it becomes very challenging to bring the baby out. And this mostly would result in an emergency cesarean. But if it's in an area where there aren't any midwives or doctors who could perform that cesarean, it could lead to the death, death of the child, the baby, and even mother as well. There's also a lot of issues around, you know, excessive bleeding, and this can also be fatal. Um, there are also issues um, like um, women having cysts, especially with type 3, because they are stoned off. When they have their period, their menstruation, it collects inside and solidifies and becomes a cyst. And in some cases, when the woman is opened up, they actually find out that it is the blood that actually, you know, coagulated there. They have a lot of urinary tract infections, very, um, find it very difficult to have sex and also to pass urine. Thank you so much for defining those. Yes, it is a practice that we need to shed more light on. And I think it's really important that our listeners understand everything that goes on with it and just the medical consequences as well as the types so we can better understand the practice. Um, I also want to talk about how FGM is practiced worldwide and it's a global problem and something that everyone, men and women, should care about. FGM is everyone's business. Can you both talk about your experience working specifically with African communities and any other insights you have just working within your network and with the girls and men who you associate with? Okay, Kibong, you can go first. Yeah, no problem. Um, so in terms of the work that we have um, done with the communities, so I think it's important to also look at the prevalence around FGM. Um, so do have um, within Africa um, over 20 um, countries practice FGM. Um, and that can range from, for example, the majority of um, the communities there um, practice FGM. So in places like Sudan, in places like Somalia, Egypt, um, you have pretty much from 86 to 100 percent, we say 100 percent, but 98, 99 percent of the women there have experienced FGM. And in other countries, it might be that, for example, 50%, there might be 50% prevalence um, of FGM. So for example, in Chad, it's about 44%, Guinea-Bissau, it's 50%. Um, and so when you look at the statistics around which countries where FGM is normalized, um, so when we say normalized, it's accepted practice, by the community, by the society, um, then it, uh, you find that in different areas that it is practiced. When you then look at uh, lower numbers, say for example, 50% or less, then you're looking at specific communities that practice um, FGM. And also the types of FGM is practiced differently across the different countries as well. Um, and when we say that it is a global issue, it's because also it is not just in Africa that FGM is practiced. It is practiced in some parts of Asia as well. Um, and it is practiced in some parts of uh, South America. And there are different pockets of communities where we are finding out now because of more awareness and because of research um, that uh, people are practicing FGM in one way or another um, for different reasons as well. And also when we're looking at 
how the world is, you know, the world is becoming more, um, because of globalization, we are understanding more about different people's cultures, but also because of globalization, we are also moving to different places as well. And sometimes when we move, we also take our cultures with us. And so to give a picture around um, the UK, in the UK, we work with migrant communities um, that have moved over to the UK. And um, when Forward first started, that was a very much a case where FGM was still being practiced amongst some communities. And so this is where our work started in that we were campaigning um, against the practice, but also for there to be legislation within the country as well, because at the time um, there wasn't any. And so, but then looking at as time has gone by and has a lot of awareness has been raised in different um, spaces and different countries, more people are aware of the consequences of FGM, but also looking at how the complexities around FGM as well and the belief around it, that means that a lot of awareness had to happen on a local level and not just at a government level. Um, and so we work on different areas and, and my work centers around working a lot with communities on the ground. Um, so again, it's looking at informing communities around the different consequences, linking the health impacts of FGM to FGM. I think that's where we first start because um, sometimes there are women who have experienced FGM that might not link to the fact that they might have recurring urinary tract infections to their experience of FGM or maybe they um, might not even like having sex to their experience of FGM. So, I mean, that just gives you quite a snapshot. Um, but also you have in some communities or in some countries um, where FGM is actually medicalized as well. So it's an accepted medical practice. You find that people have different beliefs uh, around FGM. But then you've got to also think of some practices that people don't consider as FGM but actually they'll call it female genital surgeries or um, have another alternative name for it. So there's a lot of different conversations around FGM, but I'll stop there. Yeah, th thanks, Kabong. Um, I think you've covered mainly all. I just want to talk about an aspect. Um, we work with men. It's not just um, working with women because we you understand that in all these communities, including the UK, um, a lot of times, Men have direct authority, and women have what we call discretionary authority, especially in you know FGM practicing communities. A lot of times, men in these practicing communities would say they don't really know exactly what is done. But then you have matriarchs in the communities who actually um, encourage and perform the FGM, but they do. They say they do it for the men, and so there's a bit of a this joint somewhere, and that's the reason why we really need to have more research and you know communication. Forward did the research with um, two countries, uh, Belgium and Amsterdam, I think, um, on men, and it's called Men Speak Out. It's on our website, um, www.forwarduk.org.uk, and you can find it Men Speak Out. It's about men's perspective on FGM, and when I say men, men in these three countries, the UK, Belgium, and then Amsterdam. Um, also, I sit also on the board um, as the co-president of the NFGM EU network. And this network really, we are campaigning um, against FGM, and especially in 2020, 21, and intersectionality. And really, you find that there are different aspects of life, um, of our lives that, you know, is um, reflected or affected by some of these practices. So religion is an aspect, sexuality, education, and a lot of this affect access to specialist services. So that's one area that we work with with our communities to try to ensure that we are able to bridge the gap between the communities and the um, professionals so that they can really access the right services for their issues. Yes. So, yes, I agree with all that you both have said. And my hope is that our listeners can realize that FGM is something to get involved with, as well as getting involved with advocating for women's rights. 
Um, let's maybe talk about how FGM is practiced just briefly so that my listeners can understand because I would expect they might have questions about that. And then also how these women might heal from the procedure. In most communities, you know, in practicing countries that some of them Kabunga has spoken about earlier, um, it's not medicalized. Um, they would use any tools that they can find, mostly knives, sharp instruments, and sometimes they would use um, blades or even fingernails for very young girls. Um, and in essence, the same instrument might be used for a lot of girls without it being sanitized in any way. Um, the, uh, the, the converse of that is in some of these um, countries as well, FGM is medicalized. Um, I'm not going to mention countries so that what we don't want to do is kind of stigmatize them. And in a way that I think part of the thinking might be, okay, it's safer. And so they, they, once a baby girl is born, they you know, have the FGM. In most of these cases, it's like the type one and two, not the very severe one um, that we spoke of earlier. Um, and there are issues around that of, you know, transmission of disease, you know, HIV, um, hepatitis, so many others. Um, and we are now in a situation of a pandemic and the worry of FGM would really have, you know, it's really now, you know, quite massive because we don't know if it's happening now, what are the risks to these girls, their family, and the cutters, wherever they are. So Kabongi can chip in here. So um, after FGM has been performed, depending on where it's been done, there are different practices for the healing process as well. So from what we have known and also from our conversations with the communities is once a girl has had FGM, um, she type three, for example, she is isolated from um, the rest of the community. And usually it's not just one person who's getting it done. It's maybe a number of young girls getting it done at the same time. And they are then kind of for type three, they might bind their uh, legs together for the healing process. And it's a very painful healing process. So if you're somebody who needs to urinate, essentially you'd have difficulties doing that. Um, and also for any of the other types as well, it's a case of just allowing your body to heal um, is trying to separate yourself from other people. Um, but also there are, might be some rituals surrounding that healing process as well. And in some communities, they might understand that FGM is a part of um, a part of, I guess, a cleansing as well. Or they might believe that um, FGM is uh, to, to make a young girl clean or this would become the kind of rite of passage, which we'll go into um, in a little bit. Um, but essentially, it's more for the physical healing. And that's really important to note that even if the, the healing physically um, happens, the mental trauma behind um, that stays. And that's not really acknowledged. I'm grateful that you pointed out that it's not acknowledged. And oftentimes we talk about the effects of the practice more physically instead of the mental effects. And so I would love if you guys could explain the coffee mornings that you do at Forward and how you help these women by being their friend and creating a safe and trusted space for them with their mental health. I think Kabon can talk about that very well. Yep, I'm happy to talk about the coffee morning. Uh, the coffee, so the coffee morning, we call it a safe space. Um, and it's called a safe space for a particular reason. is because this is a space that women can really let their guard down. Um, and women with similar experiences come together and we discuss different topics. So it's uh, whether it's around um, female health in terms of the body um, or understanding mental health. Um, understanding parenting, how do you parent in a, in a very different society, a different country, um, and also having conversations around sex as well as conversation around FGM um, and different kind of, it's really, really kind of a broad, broad um, topics that we go into. 
Um, but the most important thing is that the safe space is then directed by the women that we work with. So they are the ones who tell us what topics that they would like to talk about. And sometimes we bring in the uh, facilitator who would help um, with more specialized kind of um, sessions. So if it's legal advice that they want, we'll bring in somebody who's a barrister. If it is something around their gynecological kind of issues or understanding anything around that area, we'd bring in a gynecologist um, or physiotherapist. Um, and so we get that space whereby they can come and they can offload. They can take time out. And under the umbrella of coffee morning, we call it putting me first. Um, and it's really for women to put themselves first in that space. Thank you so much. I think that's such an amazing program that you guys have started and it just gives women the space to feel empowered and to just have more confidence in themselves and to feel yeah like they can really conquer so I think that it's important for us to talk about why FGM is practiced in most cases it's not practiced out of malice but it's practiced out of tradition and I think if we can explain that uh, we can have a better understanding of the practice um FGM, it's a very um, interesting one to begin to understand. I don't mean interesting in a funny way, um, but it's really um, something that a lot of families do out of love, which is almost counterintuitive. You think, why would anyone do this to their child out of love? But actually, it's because um, some mothers believe, our families believe, when their girls are caught, they will marry well, they will find, you know, good husbands. And so we describe FGM as it's a social norm. People do it because it guarantees status and acceptance. A man who marries that into that family believes that um, they've married a chaste girl and into an honorable family. There's approval by the community and there's pride from her family and for the girl herself. There are rewards and benefits. There's the dowry, there's public recognition, and such like. Um, not doing FGM and not, not confirming means a person is isolated or excluded. Um, it brings shame and ridicule. In some, for some families, they are ostracized and rejected. And there's also the stigma of being you know, looked upon as that one or that family who didn't court their girls. Um, it's very important to understand the socio-cultural context of why FGM happened. I've just spoken about some of them. So it's culture and tradition. It is not religious. It is not in the Bible. It is not in the Quran. It is not in the Hadith that girls and children must be caught. But some religious leaders use religion and as a way of coercing people to partake in FGM. Um, and the other aspect, Kabong mentioned it earlier, is aesthetics and hygiene. Some people believe that, you know, the vulva looks ugly and so it needs to be trimmed or cut to make it, you know, nicer to the view or to make that person cleaner so they're hygienic and there's also in some issues or some areas it's a rite of passage so as a girl becomes you know gets to the age of maybe 13 and they are now seen as a woman one of the things they do is FGM to welcome her into the community of women and that now she's marriageable and men can come and ask for a hand in marriage yeah that's crazy to me I feel like if we can just start stating the facts about FGM then we can hopefully change the desirability around a woman who's been cut you know if we can explain that this practice doesn't have any benefits and you can still have all of these things with a woman who's not been cut just because she's cut doesn't mean she's more desirable and so I think that's really important to talk about and to just get the facts out there because if people can understand the facts, then hopefully they can start realizing that we don't need to continue on this practice. You hit the nail on the head there. 
with your last comment because um, there is an issue of desirability or not with regards to FGM and one of the effects of FGM. So when we talk about FGM, we do not practice or accuse anybody's culture. No, we believe that you know culture is dynamic. And for example, an African culture, it's beautiful. It's not just Africa as we've spoken about. So they're um, diverse cultures. But the issue again about FGM is a lot of women who have been caught in one form or the other of those types then have a reduced um, ability to enjoy sex. A lot of them actually do not engage in sex for procreation. And they just say, I do it just to have my children. And um, I don't like it when my husband looks at me in a certain way and he wants to have sex. I don't want to be part of it because it hurts. So men, in the end, then begin to have extramarital affairs because they are, you know, they just feel a particular man has said to us in one of our training sessions, which he came to, um, he had to divorce his first wife because every time he had sex with her, he felt as if he was raping her because she wasn't, she was in, you know, agony and he felt terrible. So he married someone else, but then he still feels quite obligated to that woman. And that's why he got into learning more about FGM. And he said now that he's ended up with like someone with two wives because that first woman had those issues she had because of her FGM. And the other issue is that she can't have children because it's affected her fertility due to some gynecological issues that she's had. So there's, there's that aspect of FGM that it does not, you know, medically do any good for women and eventually for men. So it's not just a woman's issue, it's a man's issue as well. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That is, it's crazy to me. And I think it's just so important that we just find a way to, to continue spreading awareness and to end the practice. Kabang, if you have anything else you want to add, feel free. If not, we can move on to our next topic. Um, I think, I mean, talks pretty much said quite a lot um, of important things. And um, I just wanted to kind of maybe just um, just even add and it as a as a socially accepted practice in some communities it's really important to to understand that um, when it something is accepted by the society a lot of people might feel like they have no choice but to practice it um, because of all the other things that could uh, they could lose um, and so in some communities if a, a woman or a girl has not gone through FGM and um, you kind of ask yourself, but how would they know if a girl has gone through FGM or not? Um, it's because in some communities, there's a whole ceremony around it. And so um, from that, then people know if so this person's daughter didn't attend that ceremony, that means she hadn't um, had FGM. And so the whole community will know that this person's daughter is then not eligible for marriage, in quote. Um, or that she would become a girl who has become very or will will explore her sexuality um, even uh, more so. Uh, and so it's kind of like that thing that separates women who are kind of eligible for marriage and women who are not eligible for marriage. And then the whole status kind of guaranteeing thing that Todd spoke about earlier um, comes into play. And I think for us, our questions are always that, you know, you can celebrate your culture and your traditions uh, as beautiful as they are. Um, why do you have to cut girls' genitals um, in that process? You know, there is no benefits to it whatsoever. And uh, one of our male champions said the underlining thing around it is power and control. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So that is crazy I just think that women can have the same power like these women can be empowered and I love that you guys are teaching that with your workshops and I feel like you really help these women understand that they have worth and that they are powerful so let's move on um we know FGM is a major problem but there are also multiple problems that go along with FGM. Can you explain a little bit more on that? Just maybe talk about topics with sexual abuse, domestic violence, child marriage, etc. 
And when women come to see us or when they present um, at any of our, you know, um, services, even virtually, um, one of the things they come to us about is their story. They tell us a story. A lot of them don't call it FGM. They don't even know what you mean by FGM. They call it what they call it in their community. So it could be Suna, you know, Budnin, you know, so many other names for it. So it's about description, describing what it is. And then they tell you the story. This happened to me and that happened to me. And then as they tell their story, we then begin to see that there's been a bit of a cycle of abuse in their lives. Um, um, a lot of times from childhood. Um, and it could range from you know, the fact that they have been you know, sexually abused, they have been trafficked, they have been displaced, maybe from one place to the other. Um, they um, also have had FGM, and they're having gynecological problems, and they are also suffering from victims of domestic abuse. Um, so it's a lot, it's, it can be, you know, um, a myriad of issues. And so like a, an onion, you have to start peeling, you know, slowly, to get to the FGM, because with a lot of them, FGM happened to them years ago. Some of them have come from war-torn areas, um, and their nightmare is not FGM. It's what they've gone through during the war. It's coming back, it's coming into the UK as refugees. It's having to deal with all those issues, and so many other things. It's dealing with um, their children, um, not being able to keep an eye on them and the issues about children being in gangs and so many things like that. So you have to pick, okay, what do we do? So in those kind of issue, cases, we work sometimes with other organizations, for example, issues to, to do with the, the children, we link up with other organizations. So our key aspect of our work is multi-agency working. So we work with other agencies Sometimes the person presenting will have a housing problem, benefits issue, um, immigration. They, they also have legal issues. Um, we have a um, pro bono legal advice clinic um, where women and their families can actually come to get free legal advice regardless of their immigration status. Um, and especially for people affected, uh, black and minority ethnic women, affected by FGM in the, in, in the UK, not just in London, the UK. Um, and so we would work with them primarily on FGM, domestic abuse, um, if they've been trafficked. A lot of the times it's psychological, um, dealing with those issues first of all, and just being getting to that point where they are, they are, we are helping them to develop coping strategies. So they go for counseling, and you know, just to help them through that journey that they've been through and to find ways to cope. And then we do befriending and support, which you've spoken about as well. Um, with the pandemic, it's kind of exacerbated a lot of issues. People who have dealt with issues have had um, post-traumatic stress, you know, flashbacks. For example, in the UK, during the first lockdown, we had a run on the shops and the malls, and you went into a, a supermarket, there was nothing to buy. All the aisles were empty. And I had one woman actually say to me, Tooks, it felt like what it felt 20 years ago when I was running away from my country because of war, and we were displaced. And she went back home, she wanted to go and buy something, she went back home, and she said she was waiting for the guns to start. Even though she knew that she was safer, there weren't any guns, but because she'd gone through that process, she said there was a run on the shops there. All of a sudden, the shops were empty, and then all of a sudden, the, you know, the army came out to keep order. Um, so there's a lot of, I would say, flashbacks that happens to these women, and that's where we try to help them. Some women have a big psychological issue or breakdown when they have girls who is about the age they were when they were caught. They don't want that to happen to their daughter. 
and it becomes an issue because they are now extra protective. So it's a myriad. But what we do at Forward is what we see is what we deal with. Because most of the time, we are the last point of help. After us, there's probably nowhere to go for them. We don't send anyone away. We deal with everything and almost anything. And we also work with other agencies and, you know, sister partner organizations to support our communities. Yeah, that's amazing. And I love that you guys have put so much heart and work into your experience and into your work with these women. And it's just really admirable. So thank you. And Kabang, if you would like to add. Yeah, just to add to what Jox has said, when we're looking at FGM, uh, like she said, there are different kinds of experiences that women have. And one thing around uh, FGM as well, and the age that it is practiced, it's usually practiced on girls, um, prepubescent girls. And when it is practiced, then what happens, it's almost in some communities, is that a girl is supposed to, is expected to be married off, even at the age of 10 years old. 11 years old, 12 years old in some communities. And um, so she's married off usually to a person who is very much old enough to be her father. And what is expected afterwards is for her to then start having children. And um, you can imagine that child marriage in some communities is very common um, under 16, uh, under 18, should we say. And so what it means is that her education is affected if she has been able to go to school. Her education is then stopped once she gets married. And then you have other gynecological issues. So obstetric fistula can start occurring, which is very common in young girls who have started having children before their bodies have been fully formed. Um, and in terms of the obstetric fistula, which also then brings some more incontinence issues. Um, and so in places where there isn't a lot of medical care, or treatment, then that fistula, which brings incontinence, means that the girl is also ostracized from the community. And um, she is, and that it can be, if she doesn't have a treatment, a lifelong thing whereby she is stigmatized, ostracized, people will not go over to her house. Um, there would be a lot of, uh, and this is not just her, it's the whole community will know because to be honest, she would be walking around and she there's, there's a smell people will say that there is a smell that follows you if you have um, obstetric fistula or any kind of fistula really and so there are different issues that comes around from having undergone FGM and Forward has worked in in different projects in different countries as well in Africa around fistula um, and at the moment we are working in about five or six different countries in within Africa um, with girls to empower girls to understand their rights and also to understand more around um, violence against women and girls. And within those different countries, it's looking at the, the context of which they live in. So FGM, for example, um, might be a big problem, but also domestic abuse might be a big problem as well. And also, you know, when you look at the statistics around maternal mortality in a lot of countries, you know, that's a it's a huge problem when it comes to FGM. And that could be a also a prerequisite for uh, increased risk from actually dying during um, childbirth um, because of FGM. Um, so there are different areas that we work on because of that. Um, and also what comes with it is also looking at the mental health aspect that, like Tox has said. Um, but that's really one thing I'll just add to what has already been. Yeah, thank you so much. You both are so knowledgeable and I love talking with you. You have so much to share and so much lovely advice to give. So thank you. Um, I think as we are going to wrap up a little bit here, um, can we talk about how we can help like individuals who are like me, who maybe have just learned about this topic or don't know about it at all. And maybe their first exposure is listening to this podcast what can we do to help the cause? Do we continue spreading awareness on social media, donating? Just how can we get involved? I think what you're doing is already, Aubrey, this is great. Um, and um, just anyone listening to this would actually learn a lot about FGM. But you've already said a lot as well about it. Um, Kabong um, directed a very small play 
um, and um, a film on effects of FGM. Um, so I would really like her to respond to you with regards to that um, last question. Thank you, Tox. Um, so I think the, the important thing is um, included in what you're doing at the moment. So having a podcast is a great way to spread information. If other people could get into that as well and include it as part of their conversations and podcasts, it would raise more awareness around FGM and also include it in the things that you're already involved in. So one thing I had the privilege of taking part in is making a short film around the effects of um, FGM on a married couple. And it really brought in the whole cultural context and understanding or how it affects women and men, but also that gap where women and men are not talking about FGM as well in those communities. And, and that's because it's still a taboo subject. It is something that's really difficult to talk about because you're talking about women's genitals um, and women's rights. And so having something that makes people feel uncomfortable sometimes is the only way to kind of push the conversation forward. And um, if you're doing a research, include it as a research topic. It's fantastic. We need more people researching around FGM and the different areas around FGM. It's a global health issue. Again, it's a woman's rights issue and it's something that anybody can, who is interested can get involved in. Also, look into what's happening locally as well. Um, look at organisations working on FGM and donate. <laughs> donate generously to organisations who are campaigning and also supporting women um, affected by FGM. And if you have the chance to do a, maybe an, an internship abroad, into a country where FGM is practiced, you can also do a little fact-finding um, and also maybe speak to the community. Trying to get an understanding is very, very important. Um, again, the more that people are aware of FGM, the more that we can actually look at removing this practice from any, any girl having to undergo this. And I know it's the UN mission um, for 2030 to make sure that you know, we don't have FGM being practiced anywhere. And so people can get involved in it from that angle as well. And then look at policies, look at influencing policies, local policies or national policies. It's an important step to make for the provision of services for the prevention when it comes to child protection. Um, and also generally for the health and well-being of women and girls. I just wanted to add a few things by um, just saying that... Um, Really, for this year's um, Zero Tolerance, that was in February, it was about, you know, ending FGM by 2030, as um, Kabunga said. But I think what's important as well is to ensure that religious and faith leaders, uh, they champion, you know, that conversation with their congregation to talk to them about, you know, the effects of FGM and why FGM is not, you know, um, a good thing for girls. Um, also to speak to governments wherever we can on social media, especially now that we are all virtual, um, to try to enshrine the Istanbul Convention in their own local laws. And if they do that, some of that is about is against you know issues around um, violence against women and girls. You know, working on things like you know having um, a consistent age of marriage in each country. For example, if you have laws that say, for example, in the UK, you know, a girl can marry at 16 with the approval of um, her parents, but FGM um, laws cuts off at 18. Um, so you wonder why are those two different? Now, a 16-year-old cannot vote and um, an 18-year-old can. Um, so is it, are we, is it a double-edged? And finally, for me, that governments also recognize FGM as a means of torture and, it, and that women come to, the, to a country looking for a place of safety, that, you know, um, avenue to hear their story. Um, yes, explore it, but keep them safe and not to be returned to countries where clearly they had fled from. Some of them had gone to the Mediterranean and so many, you know, perilous journeys to come into Europe um, just to be safe. Um, um, I think countries who say they're against FGM 
should actually really apply that protection um, according to the fundamental human rights, the right to life and safety, that should be paramount. It should not be about black and minority ethnic or you know, migrants and the othering of FGM. In a few countries like Belgium, for example, FGM is accorded that you know, standard. If a woman talks about that and is proven, she will be given her right to stay in Belgium. And I think most countries, if not all countries, should really you know, look at that and consider that very carefully, especially through entry ports into their countries and ensure that they are right, I would say, um, vehicles, interpreters, support workers, counselors, who are culturally now nuanced to understand how to, you know, um, get the information they need from whoever they are facing at the port of entry. Yeah, thank you. I think that it's important that we can try to get political leaders involved in this and also the government, like you said. And as far as my listeners go, I think that it's your responsibility and it's all of our business to continue to normalize this conversation surrounding FGM and surrounding advocating for women's rights. We can bring it up with our friends in conversations and with our families in school. I also think that it's really important that we continue to teach about female genital mutilation and just women's rights and domestic violence and all the things in school so that individuals can learn at a young age that this is wrong and they can grow up to help the cause. And um, I think also sharing on social media and like you guys said, donating. So those are just a few things that we can do to help. And so I hope you all feel empowered to do something and this sparks a desire to help this cause and help um, these women. So thank you guys so much. And thank you, Talks and Kabung. You both have put in some really amazing insight and I'm grateful for our conversation. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Aubrey. Thank you for having us. Well done, Aubrey. All the best. Yes. <laughs> Thank gonna, you. It's going to be really good. Thank we you. We did it regardless of all the IT. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> we pushed through. Yeah. All right. <laughs>